Good evening. It's an honor to be with you once again. Grateful for uh, the exchange that we could have tonight and have Wayne um, down uh, preaching in Kalamazoo. And hopefully he's there right now. Our service begins at 6, so he and I had to remind each other, who's 5.30, who's 6 o'clock? And um, yeah, I haven't gotten any texts from the elders, so I think we're good. We're good on that. Tonight we're in the Minor Prophets in Zechariah, and um, we're going to look at two chapters tonight, but they really, they, they tell one cohesive story. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles there to Zechariah chapter 7. That's difficult to find. It's near the end of the Old Testament, so find Matthew, and then you go back, Malachi, and then Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 7, and we'll read chapter 8 as well. And uh, I know Elder uh, Vanderway already prayed for the message, but let's just take a moment again and ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Our Father, we need You now. Uh, you have given us Your Word, but we also ask that You would give us hearts to love, uh, minds to know and to comprehend, wills that would want to do Your Word, that, that these words would not fall upon deaf ears, but that we would hear it, receive it, believe it, and be transformed by it. Show us Jesus Christ and make us more like Him by the uh, power of Your Holy Spirit. And we pray this for the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. Zechariah chapter 7, the Word of God to us tonight. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah one of the, on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Keslev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharazer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate." And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem 
each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people, as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong." For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem into the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong na nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus far, the reading of God's inerrant and life-giving Word to us. Well, some of you will, will know, uh, sports fans of you will, will know, that earlier this year, a door closed for uh, former baseball slugger Barry Bonds, and that was that he did not receive the votes necessary in the time necessary uh, that is 10 years, there's a 10-year window after retirement to enter, be entered and inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. And the question is, how is it that the man who has more homers than any other player to ever pick up the bat in the history of the sport is somehow not immortalized in a museum that's all about baseball history? And of course, the answer that many gave is that he didn't deserve it. 
he was an imposter. He was a fake. His record reflects a vain and an empty manipulation of the game that he claimed to love and honor, namely by relying heavily upon uh, performance-enhancing drugs rather than his own skill. And so, in the words of one sports writer, for all of his great skill, the most unimaginable achievement in the career of Barry Bonds is not that he broke the all-time home run record, but that he debased it. And so, Barry Bonds is not in the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. Actually, uh, a baseball of his is the 756th uh, ball that he hit over the fence is in the museum with an asterisk branded on it, and that asterisk, of course, just vacates all meaning uh, from that achievement. And this is all a warning to us of the dangers and the inevitable disappointments of pretending to be somebody that you are not in front of the world, the dangers of pretending to be something that you're not in front of the world. Even more dangerous, though, is pretending to be someone that you're not in front of God. And that's what Zechariah is, is warning the nation of Israel here in, in these chapters that we've read. Uh, what we have here is a sort of collection of, of short speeches. Sometimes they're called sermons of Zechariah. This is right in the middle of this book, and the way that Hebrew is often structured is that authors would put the most important thing right in the middle, so that means this is worth paying careful attention to. Uh, but it's different than any other genre in the book. So there's night visions uh, in the first half, there are oracles in the second half, right in the middle we have these sermons. And the main point of Zechariah's sermon, it turns out, is also the same point as my sermon tonight. Isn't that crazy how he and I worked that out? The main point of his sermon to the people of Israel is this, empty, fake, imposter-like religion, empty religion must be replaced with earnest obedience, and that can only be energized by God's promises. I'll say that one more time. Empty religion must be replaced with earnest and real obedience, which can only be energized by God's promises. Let's consider first tonight the danger of empty religion. The danger of empty religion. Well, we turn back to verse 1 of chapter 7. We're reminded of the historical context. Uh, we're not in the fourth year of the reign of David or Solomon or Hezekiah or Josiah or any of the kings of Israel. We're not in the fourth year of the reign of a Jew. We're in the fourth year of the reign of Darius, Persian king. And that reminds us that we're in the time of exile. Zechariah is ministering during that period where a, a band of Jews have, have been permitted to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls and the temple. And at this point, the temple is almost done. It's nearing completion. And the residents of Bethel uh, send some delegates, you see that in verse 2, those names that are kind of hard to pronounce. They send these gentlemen to uh, inquire of the priests who will be working in the uh, temple. And here's the question. It's in the first person, but, but really it's representative of the entire city, Bethel, that sent them, likely the entire nation of Israel. And the question is, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I've done for so many years? What's that referring to? Well, ever since the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, 
Israel, uh, Israelites fasted in the fifth month as a way of commemorating that, that fateful day when Nebuchadnezzar came in 586 and burned the city to the ground. And three other fasts are going to be mentioned in uh, this, our text tonight, and they all correspond to other moments of great grief and, and mourning uh, for the people of Israel during their time of exile. But what has prompted the question in verse 3 is the fact that people are looking around and they're seeing that this building project, this new worship center for the people of God, uh, it's, it's almost done. It's coming to completion. And on the one hand, that question is reasonable, isn't it? The, the question sort of is like, why should we keep fasting if perhaps now we have reason for feasting, for rejoicing? We were fasting because we lost the temple. The temple is back. Do we need to keep doing this? Let's just grant that, you know, in one sense, that seems like a reasonable question to ask, but something in the way that it's framed betrays an underlying heart issue. Again, look at how the question is framed in verse 3. Should we weep and abstain in the fifth month as we have been doing for so many years? Right? Do you sense the exasperation? Um, you can see how the people are are kind of done with this formality. They're ready to move on to something that's less of an imposition on their time. It's almost as though to them it's, it's like it's a burden. And so Zechariah, he clears his throat, and he gives God's response, and that response comes in verse 5, and it cuts them to the quick. God says, wait a second. Was it really for me that you fasted? Is that, what you're, is that what you're trying to claim, Israel, that you were doing this for me? And see, God reveals the true nature of their question and the true character of their heart. They're not actually interested in worshiping God, whether it's fasting or feasting. They just care about themselves. When they do eat, it's, it's because they're hungry. When they don't eat, it's also because they want to get something out of it. It's not because they are genuinely mournful of the sin that brought them into exile or because they want to devote their affections solely unto God, not be distracted by earthly things, which is, you know, the reason why we, we fast. We fast to kind of hone in on God and the things of God. No, God's saying you're doing it for yourselves. And this is always the case of empty religiosity. This is always the case of empty religiosity, that that there is no, uh, people have no interest in a higher power or a greater good. Rather, they don't have any interest in anything beyond themselves and their own felt needs. That's empty religion. Now we say, now why should someone voluntarily, willingly deprive themselves of food? That doesn't sound fun. Well, maybe it's not fun, but from one perspective, it, it could feel really good. How so? Well, it could silence certain guilty feelings that they might have. It could boost a sense of piety. You know, they could say, look how far we've come from our ancestors, our forefathers. They provoke God to wrath, but now we entreat Him on these regular cycles four times a year. We go through this fasting. Uh, we do things that show that we care about Him more than our ancestors did. And so, give them a sense of, of feeling like perhaps they were better than others. God says, though, don't you dare play that game with me. Don't you, don't you drag me into this. 
Don't bring me into this scheme of yours. I never once asked you to institute these fast days. Indeed, it's not like it's in the law of Moses that they had to do this. This is something they took up on their own. And God says, I didn't ask you to do it, and you're certainly not doing it for me. You're doing this for you. Don't act like it's a burden. Don't, don't come to me with all this, oh, we've been doing it for so many years. It's such an imposition. No, you've been doing it for yourselves the whole time because it makes you feel better. Don't act like this is an act of piety. That's the pull, though, of empty religion, isn't it? And I wonder if you've ever felt that pull, that temptation, that draw towards empty religion. Are you resting in the false security that religiosity affords? It's more prevalent than we might at first realize. How can you know when to spot it? Because what's, what's interesting, the difficult thing is that on the outside, externally, earnest religion and, and empty religion look almost identical. They're doing the same things. We're talking about a heart motive, a heart condition here. So, how can we spot the difference? Well, here's some examples comparing the religiously empty and the religiously earnest. The religiously empty come to church because, well, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, maybe our family expects it of us, our friends respect it, uh, respect us for it. The religiously earnest come to church because God is worthy. Uh, the religiously empty weep over sin because of the negative consequences that it can have. Maybe uh, um, um, severed relationships, uh, pain, emotional or physical, um, loss of freedom. The religiously earnest weep over sin because of the callous way it treats the Savior who died to win us from it. The religiously empty give money, time, and tithes because they like to be able to track and to quantify how good they really are. The religiously earnest give to God because they recognize everything they have comes from Him to begin with, and they just wish they could give Him even more. The religiously empty will attend morning and evening worship even if it's just a guest preacher. And Pastor Dale wouldn't even know if you weren't here. You attend, even when he's preaching an obscure text in Zechariah, why? Well, because then you can kind of pat yourself on the back and say, now the rest of my week is freed up to do kind of whatever I want. I've put my time in, so to speak. The religiously earnest come to worship every chance they get because they recognize, I live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and I need Him. Do you see, this is really, this is the difference it comes down to. The religiously empty use God to get things. The religiously earnest want God for God's sake. He is the gift. And that's lacking here terribly in the life of Israel at this point. They're manipulating God rather than marveling at His work and at His being. And so, I wonder if some of those examples have helped draw out the tendencies that any of us could have to, to hide behind the formality uh, of religion instead of living by faithful obedience and submission to God. It's such a temptation. Why is it such a temptation uh, to, to um, 
hide behind religiosity. The reason is because it's easy. It is. Yeah, it, it might involve coming to church, attending Bible studies, fasting even, community service, giving of our resources, and, and all the rest. It, but, but that's easy because at most that requires a schedule change. It does not require a heart change. And so it's easy. Zechariah's message, though, is saying God doesn't want your time. He wants your heart. Right? He doesn't want you saying, hey, look at all the different things I do. He, he wants you saying, here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Zechariah's message is synonymous, synonymous with that of Hosea. And Jesus famously quoted to the Pharisees, we heard it earlier in our service, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or similarly, we read this in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. So this is what God wants from us. He, he doesn't want our acts of service or our engagement in religious ritual. He wants our hearts, which will be most evidenced in, in earnest or real obedience. And so we've said that empty religion needs to be replaced with earnest obedience. What does that look like? Well, Zechariah tells us. Look at verse uh, 9 and 10. Several things are noted. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Uh, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So four things mentioned here for what God really wants to see. First, render true judgments or, or execute true judgments. It's repeated in um, uh, chapter 8 and verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Um, God is calling uh, uh, the people to, to kind of reflect here uh, one of his premier attributes, if we could put it that way. God is all about justice, all about righteousness, doing the right thing and making sure that we care about the right thing being done. Uh, to say that God renders true judgments, which he does in his word and in his will, means that, that he never tips the scales uh, in favoritism towards anybody. Everybody gets their just desserts. Um, one of the many scriptures we could reference would be Psalm 9. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. That's what He wants from His people as well. Second, kindness. It's that Hebrew word. You've heard it. Hesed, steadfast love, covenant love, um, mercy. It's the Old Testament imperative here that anticipates what Paul says in Ephesians when he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word most often used to describe God's dealing with His people, even though they're sinners. He is merciful. And so, in these first two um, uh, calls upon the nation, justice and mercy, we find that sweet gospel combination. Isn't that what we see at the cross? You look to the cross, and you see justice and mercy meet, right? Because at the cross, every single sin got what it deserved, and yet at the cross, every believing sinner didn't get what they deserved. Is that your testimony tonight? that you've experienced both the justice and the mercy of God, your sins being dealt with, and yet you receiving His mercy, His hesed, His kindness. 
It's a way to actively obey God, to show kindness. Third, uh, the third thing is actually stated in the negative. Do not oppress the weak and the vulnerable. It's a call for advocacy here. The, the people groups that are mentioned, uh, widows, uh, orphans, aliens, they, they not only did not have somebody to provide for them financially, but they didn't have anyone to stand up for them in society when they were being abused and mistreated. And God cares for the widow. He cares for the orphan. You should too. That's what he's saying to Israel. Finally, all this comes together in that fourth exhortation, also in the negative, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And the idea, it just kind of brings it all together. The idea is that an Israelite should always seek his brother's welfare. They're bound together as a part of covenant community. For that community to exist, there needed to be kindness shown and mercy. They need to treat one another justly. So, I, I hope you've seen, as we put all this together, what God is asking of His people is nothing less than that they act like Him, that they reflect Him. These are all His attributes, He's saying, this is what I want from you. It's almost as though God's saying, forget the sacrifices, forget the ritual, rather what I want is reflection. Live like me, love like I do, look like me in society. And that's a really high calling, isn't it? That's a high calling. How do you measure up to it? Do you care about what God cares about? Do you love the things that God loves? Do you practice empty religion or real obedience? That's the question. And then Zechariah reminds his audience in verse 11 and following that God has been telling his people this since day one, but the former generation, they didn't listen. And it's because they didn't listen, it's because they honored him with his lips, but, but their hearts were far, with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. It's because of this that they were sent into exile in the first place, and that's why you're rebuilding the temple. It's because the previous generation would not look like me, would not reflect me, would not love like me. And so, we're told that in verses 11 through 14, they refused to pay attention, they turned a stubborn shoulder. Uh, isn't this an interesting uh, image, metaphor in verse 12. They made their hearts as hard as a diamond, diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit. This is why the former generation could not change, could not go from empty religion to, to earnest and real obedience. Why? Because they had hearts that were hard as stone, as hard as diamond. And maybe that sounds just a little too familiar to you, because maybe you're thinking, that's my heart. You know, Pastor, I, I hear you're telling me that, that we need to abandon empty religion and just the formalities, and we need to, we need to actually live it out, not just, not just talk the talk. We need to walk the walk. I, I see what God calls me to. It's such a high calling. It's to live like He lives. It's to love like He loves. It's to look like Him. It's nothing less than that but I, I fear I have a heart like Zechariah is describing of Israel. So how could I possibly go from empty religion to earnest obedience? That how could I change? Is there hope? Can anything bring about a change for you and prevent you from being eternally scattered from the presence of God as that former generation was scattered to the four corners of the world? And the answer is yes. Good news tonight. There is something that can change you, change your heart, change your condition, but there's only one thing that can change you, one thing alone, 
One thing can pierce that heart of stone and energize us into real obedience, and it is believing the promises of God. Notice how Zechariah's sermon does not end with a warning about the past failures of Israel, but when we get to chapter 8, he immediately moves into the future hope of what God is going to do for the people. And the blessings of chapter 8 are, are, so, um, are so rich and so, so uh, deep, it would be impossible to reflect fully on them. We just draw a few out, though. Notice there's the promise of, of, of covenant relationship that God will, will dwell with His people. Verse 8, they shall be my people, I'll be their God. I'll bring them in to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. He he will take up Jerusalem as a seat of His abode once again. They won't be scattered from their God. They will be with Him. And it's not just that God is going to revisit Jerusalem. He's actually going to restore it. This is a a full restoration of this people, this city. Verse 3, Jerusalem shall be called the idea is once again the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts shall be called once again the holy mountain. The names of God's people and God's place, the the names that they deserve will be used again. Or verse 13, as you've been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, I'm going to change all that. I'll save you and you shall be, what, not a word of cursing, now a blessing. And talks about how the land will, will produce fruit again and and there will be the peace of heaven. But uh, most surprising is perhaps what's mentioned in verses 4 and s- four through 6. He paints this picture of what it's going to look like. If you were to peer out your window, you're in Jerusalem, it's been restored according to God's promise here. And he says, you know what you'd see if you looked out your window in the streets of Jerusalem? You'd see elderly people, um, uh, maybe sitting out on their porch on their rocking chair, um, grandma and grandpa, and they're looking out in the streets and they're watching the, the streets teeming with young boys and girls. They're playing soccer. They're having a good time. And, and it's this promise, it's this picture that seems to be the hardest for Israel to believe. They say it's, it's a marvel, verse um, 6. Do you see that there in verse 6 where God kind of chastises their, their unbelief? This is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people, should it also be a marvel in my sight. Uh, Translation, you think this could never happen. I don't think that way because I can make anything happen. I'm God. (laughs) That's what he's saying there. But but this is just so unimaginable to the people because they're looking around and and they're seeing how depleted they've become as, as a nation. They're thinking, well, it's one thing to rebuild a broken down temple, but even if that happened, the Israelite people are so diminished, so scattered, many still in captivity, the population so depleted that to hear of a day when the young and the old alike would be teeming the streets, it just seems like an impossibility. Human, human ingenuity could not manufacture this. In fact, right now, today, in our world, we have nations that are trying to manufacture something like this. Perhaps you've seen in the news in just recent weeks um, the announcement from uh, the government in China where they are now offering financial incentives to families that are willing to have more than one child. After decades and decades of a one-child-only policy, they're recognizing we are not repopulating our nation. And if things continue on this trajectory, 
it will, it will not end well for us. And so now they're trying to change an entire culture that's gotten used to, to not having kids. To have kids, we'll pay you money. Uh, similarly, in Tokyo, just a couple months ago, a, um, uh, a, there was recently upheld a constitutional ban on same-sex marriage, a ban on same-sex marriage. That's just not done these days. That, that just doesn't happen. And maybe if we look at the court's definition of marriage, we start to understand why. This is how the court defined the marriage that they were trying to protect. They said marriage, quote, is a system established by society to protect a relationship between men and women who bear and raise children. They didn't need to say that. They could have just said a a relationship between men and women who bear and raise children. You see Tokyo, Japan, they're in the same situation as China where they realize we cannot give a stamp of approval on unions that will not repopulate this place. Both of these countries are facing a bleak future, past decisions that likely cannot be overturned and are leading to the demise of their way of life. And so, as I said, human ingenuity could not manufacture a population boon that will bring this tiny remnant back from the brink of extinction, but God can do that, and God promises to do it here. And that's sort of the whole point of Zechariah's message, and it's what you and I need to to understand tonight. This is what you need to know before you leave tonight, that there are things out there that you just can't do, but God can and God will. Just as He can bring a nation back from the brink of extinction, only God can take you as you stand on the brink of hell and bring you back by changing your heart, bringing you into his kingdom love, bringing you into community and covenant with you, changing your heart so that you are propelled, you are fueled into obeying him, not in an empty way, not in, as an imposter, but as one who truly from the bottom of their heart loves this God because of what he has done for you. Only God can do that. Just as only God could change the nation of Israel, their condition, so only God can change the condition and the nature of your heart. You need to know that tonight. You can't do it. Quit trying. You can't do it. doesn't matter how many self-help books you read. Uh, your, your pastors can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. It doesn't matter how often you come to church. What you need is the Word of God received by faith. That and that alone changes a sinner into a saint. You need to recognize what Zechariah is teaching Israel here. Yeah, it might seem like a marvel to you, but it's not a marvel to God. This is easy for God. This is what He's all about. And so, we begin with the promises of God, and when we believe those, it will catapult us into grateful service and obedience. That's the only way we could ever be really energized to obey God, by recognizing what He's done for us first. And that's the logic that dominates chapter 8 of Zechariah. We see it several times. Look at verse 13 as one example. As you've been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and thus you shall be a blessing. So that's what he's going to do. And then what does he say? 
Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Get to work. Why? Because I'm going to save you. Rest in my promise. Rest in the promises of God, and, and from that rest, you will be strengthened to get to work. Or, or there's what we read in, in verse uh, 19. Here, Zechariah references those fasts that kicked off the entire discussion, the entire sermon. What's God going to do with those fasts? He says, I'm going to turn those into seasons of feasting, of joy, of gladness, and cheerful feasts. And then he says, because I'm going to do that, love, truth, and peace. Be the people you're meant to be. Why? Because I'm going to do something for you. Uh, There's another place uh, we could uh, look. It's when God uh, promises uh, what He would do for the uh, remnant. He says in verse 14, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent. Okay, so he's thinking of generations past, I said I was going to bring disaster and I could not change my mind. Now I'm saying I'm going to bring blessing and I'm not going to change my mind. Verse 15, so again I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Okay, what are we going to do in response to that good message, Israel? Fear not, these are the things you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts. Love no false oath. It all comes in response to what God establishes that he first will do. I'm coming with blessings, so therefore, be a blessing. Your, friends, your frustrations in the Christian life in terms of sanctification, your growth in grace, you, you will grow in grace to the degree in which you understand it has to begin with God. You will be frustrated in your growth of grace if you keep thinking it depends on you. You'll be frustrated. You'll be inordinately anxious, angry. All that goes away, though, when we shine the light on God and what He promises to do for us. It's in response to His promises that we are to be energized to real obedience and therefore abandon empty religion. And so if that's a struggle for you today, if you keep resting on, on what you're doing, if you keep trying to offer up what you're doing as a means of receiving some favor from God, you've got it all backward. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul like to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See, it's all about God. It's not, look, I've washed myself up, so now I live. No, you must wash me or I die. You need to get this gospel logic right. Everything depends on it. Everything depends on it. And so, if you're struggling with that today, the question is, what promise are you missing out on? There's all these rich promises in chapter 8 that Israel's given that's meant to kind of energize them into obedience, real, true, earnest obedience. Zechariah promises, or God promises through Zechariah a day when he's going to make a new Jerusalem. Paul promises something even better. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, he says, 2 Corinthians 5. God is making all things new. Zechariah tells us that. Paul says, and he started with you. 
Isn't that a good word to hear today? That God is not just making the whole cosmos new. He's making you and me new creations. He's starting right here, starting in your heart. That's His promise to you. And so, in response to that work that God is doing and will continue to do, bringing it to completion at the day of Christ, live a life not of empty religion, but of real, heartfelt, Spirit-led obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for uh, your word to us and, and the ways in which it convicts us of those sins which cling so closely. And, and we confess we often fall back to works righteousness. We, we so often uh, try to find a, a sense of security uh, in what we can do and what we can offer. Cause us to, to cast our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, that we would stand in Him alone gloriously complete, would we first start with all that you have promised to do for us, and in obedience, and with a thankful heart, would we live lives that please you. We pray this for Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand, and and in response to the gospel heard this evening, we'll sing, take my life, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee.
Receive now your Lord's blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Thank you.